Well, if you would turn uh, with me to uh, Psalm 2, which in the church uh, green Bibles is page 543, and in the large print Bibles, page 477. Uh, no, 841. If you're struggling, turn to the middle. You'll probably be in the Psalms and go to Psalm 2. There we go. So I'm going to read uh, the second Psalm. Psalm 2, from verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains. And throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. And I've entitled this message, The One to Worship. The One to to worship. You may remember from last week that Psalms 1 and 2 stand as, as gateposts to the Psalter, upon which hangs the gate in which you can enter into the worship of God. Or you could look at Psalms 1 and 2 as guards to the temple, through whom you must pass if you want to come in. And the two Psalms are linked together. Psalm 1 speaks of the way of worship, and Psalm 2 speaks of the one to worship. Psalm 1, you may remember, begins with, blessed is the one, in the first verse. And Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who. And this device is uh, what's called an inclusio, where a theme or a word brackets the text and holds them together. And so Psalm 1 and 2 begin and end with blessing, blessed. Psalm 1 says that we are blessed when we delight in the law of the Lord. The word of God is the way to worship. Psalm 2 shows us the king whom the word of God reveals. 
The king who, if we are to be blessed, we must worship. And if you would remember from last time, that word blessed is a a key word in the Psalter. And blessed means life as it is meant to be lived. And we looked last week at the illustration of, of of, of a car being on the road rather than the canal or a a whale being in the sea rather than on the beach. They are living or acting according to how they are designed to. And as humanity, we are made to live under God's rule. And so we are blessed. We are living the life we are made to live as we live under his rule. In Psalm 1, we saw that that rule is his word. And in Psalm 2, we'll see that that ruler is God's king. If you want to be blessed, Psalm 2 shows us the king who we are to worship. And it shows us too the utter craziness of not worshipping Jesus. The craziness of rejecting God's king. We are blessed as we worship him. And we are not just wicked, but we are utter fools if we do not see who Jesus is and worship him. Now, this psalm is broken into four sections where we hear four different voices speak. We see, or hear rather, the voice of the wicked nations. We hear the voice of the Lord. We hear the voice of the king. And then finally, the voice of the psalmist. And these voices show us that blessing is found in Jesus, that he is the one to worship, that he reigns forever, that nothing will change that. And if you want to enter into this Psalter, if you want to be able to sing these songs, if you want to be able to worship God, it is only through Jesus whom you can come. In other words, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so the first voice then is that of the wicked nations. In verses 1 to 3, this voice speaks of the rebellion of the nations. The psalm begins with a question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Uh, Nations and peoples speak of those who are not worshipping God. They are the wicked described in Psalm 1. Notice what they're doing. They are conspiring and they are plotting. To conspire is to make evil plans. So groups that come together to to do evil. But the word plot is interesting because in the Hebrew, it's the same word as is translated in Psalm 1, meditate. So meditate and plot are the same word. And in Psalm 1, when we thought about the word meditate, we said it was to to utter or to mutter aloud. And so the blessed person of Psalm 1 meditates on God's law, speaks of God's law, thinks of God's law. But the wicked person meditates on how to get rid of God's law, as we'll see. But the psalmist asks in verse 1, why are they doing this? Why? And he's asking for two reasons. First of all, why are they doing this? Because 
There is no warrant for this conspiring and plotting. There's no good reason for them to do it. God is good. His rule is blessing. His word is delightful. Why would they do this when God is so good? But secondly, and more to the point in this psalm, he's asking why, because conspiring and plotting against God is pointless. Notice he says the plots, the conspiracies are in vain. They are pointless. They are vanity. God is all-powerful. He rules over all as creator. He is the sustainer of all things. You cannot undo or overthrow God and his word. It is vanity. It is a vain thing. And so in verse 1, the psalmist says, why are they doing this? And in verse 2, we see that the kings of the earth are rising up and banding together. That means they are working together. There is a universal and an organized plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you see that in verse 2? So the, the kings of the earth and the rulers, are, they rise up, they band together. Notice who they plot against. Against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord is God and the anointed is his king. Now Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 tells us that the psalm, this psalm in particular, was written by David who was the king of Israel, the anointed chosen ruler of God's people. And David did suffer conspiracy and plot against him. But we'll see in this psalm that it speaks of a greater ruler than David. It is ultimately speaking against the anointed one or the Messiah, which means anointed one, or the Christ, which is the anointed one. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one, Jesus And so the peoples here are working together, they are banding together against God the Father and against Jesus, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the King. Now when you think about it, people don't tend to rebel or conspire or get that worked up about the idea of God as a a concept. But historically and today, many try and rebel against the Lord, the true God, and against Jesus. It's interesting how sometimes conversations about God can turn ugly when you mention the name of Jesus. When you define who God is, that's when people get annoyed very often. And we see so much rebellion today as there has always been against the inspired word of God and against the, this, uh, uh, a biblical worldview. So there is, a con- there is conspiracies and plots, rulers and kings working together against the Lord and his anointed. And look at verse 3. This is what they say. This is their voice that we hear. Look at what the conspiracy and plots try to do. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. 
So the rebels see the rule of the Lord and his anointed not as the way of blessing someone, but as restrictive, as a set of chains or shackles that they need to throw off. They want to live their own way. They want to set their own rules, mistakenly thinking that this is the way to freedom. God's word, they say, are like chains and shackles holding us back from being the people we really can be. They think it's the way to freedom. And so the rulers band together and they try and throw off the law of God. They want to suppress the church of Jesus Christ by persecuting and murdering Christians. They want to redefine what God says marriage is or what God says a man or a woman is. They want to outlaw Christian practice or some of what Christians might say. They want to decide themselves when life begins and how and when it should end. They want to be in charge of the world. They want to run it in ways that benefit them and forget everybody else. Now, this has been the case in biblical history when we think of people like Pharaoh, Jezebel, Haman, nations surrounding Israel, world empires that try to wipe out God's people. All were driven by Satan to stop the coming of the anointed king to bring God's kingdom in. And we see the same happening today as the kings and the rulers of our world band together against the Lord and his anointed. We see evil despots and governments. We see Hollywood, political leaders, sports teams, music industry, corporations, schools, banding together, trying to overturn God's moral law to try and break what they see as the chains and shackles of God's word. And we see today uh, Darwinian atheistic worldviews and rainbow flags as the latest incarnations in the West of the rulers banding together to throw off the shackles of God. And they're everywhere. Our children are taught these things in their schools so that they grow up believing them to be true. And they are demanding that we bow down to their ways. We are told that, that God's ways regarding marriage is a, is a chain and a shackle that must be thrown off. We see these things everywhere. Almost every film that comes out these days. Almost every song that is sung. These conspiracies and plots, they are universal. They are organized and they are determined. And we see this evil conspiring and plotting is nothing new. This is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, when the early church were facing persecution, the apostles used Psalm 2 to explain how what was happening to them was what happened to Jesus. So they said this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, kings and rulers which would never normally band together, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Do you see in those 
in those words, echoes of Psalm 2? It's very clear, isn't it? Notice sworn enemies working together to destroy God's anointed. And the same thing continues today. There is a world that hates Jesus, that hates God's word, and wants to break the shackles of it, thinking it's the way to freedom. And the rulers and kings of the world, they look powerful to us, don't they? They can be frightening. They can be intimidating. Our young people go to school surrounded by this stuff, and it is frightening to be the blessed one of Psalm 1, to stand alone, as we looked at last week. Our workplaces demand this of us, that we try and break off these shackles too. There is conspiracies and plots everywhere against God and his anointed. And it can look scary until we hear a different voice, the voice of the Lord. And he speaks in verses 4 to 6, where we see, secondly, the rebuke of the Lord. Because the kings and rulers of this world, they, they will band together and they will conspire and they will plot But here's the key thing to understand from verses 4 to 6. God is not under threat. God is not under threat. Notice in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. First, notice he is enthroned. So we have some rulers and kings in this world rebelling But notice where God is. He is enthroned in heaven. He is above all. He sees all. And you get the impression of God here looking down from above. And as he looks down from above, notice he laughs. What's going on here is is God is, is laughing at the ridiculousness of humanity trying to rebel against him, thinking that they can overturn his rule. Uh, it's a little bit like um, if it, some of you may have had or have goldfish. And imagine you, you've got like a, a goldfish bowl with a whole bunch of goldfish in them. It might be a, you know, a bit of a bigger bowl than just you know, one little one. But you've got all these, these goldfish. And imagine you come into your room one day where these goldfish are. And for some reason, they've managed to, to write how... A, a, a rebellion at the side of the, 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 the goldfish bowl. They're going to rebel against your house, these, these little goldfish swimming around in the bowl. They, 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 they come up the top and they start shaking their fins at you and all this kind of stuff. And you look at them and you think, well, what are these, what are they doing? What are they doing? And you realize that they're trying to rebel against me. They're, trying to, they're saying they're going to rule my house. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, isn't it? As I'm saying it, I'm laughing. I think it's ridiculous. All I have to do is just, and the goldfish bowl falls over and they, they're all gone, right? The same principle we're supplying here. The globe is like a goldfish bowl. God is above it. He looks down and he sees humanity shaking their fist at him, thinking that they can overturn his rule. It's laughable. It's laughable. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 15 says this, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. 
He raised the islands as though they were fine dust. And so I gave the illustration of a goldfish bowl. We are like a drop in that bowl to God. And humanity thinks they can rebel against his rule. It's laughable. Laughable. And his laughter here is scorn. It's showing how pathetic we are in our rebellion against his rule. How can we possibly think that we can throw off his word? How can we possibly think that we are a threat to him? And in verse 5, we see the rebuke from the Lord. God is angry with rebellion against him. Now this anger here, it's not petulance. It's actually justice. Because his rule is good. His rule is true freedom. It is for the good of all creation. To throw off his word results in much suffering. And we see that suffering, don't we, all over the world today. The world in rebellion against God is a world of much suffering because of that rebellion against God. Isn't that true? And you see it all around us. And as God's word is thrown out and people suffer, God is rightly angry. And he tells us so in rebuke. His word word speaks against the kind of behavior that the wicked want to be free to do and shows us how bad it is. And God shows us it's wrong. He is angry. And God's wrath is terrifying. This is almighty God that they're going up against. It's not, it's not a light thing. It's a terrifying thing. Because just like I can elbow a goldfish bowl and turn it over, God can do much worse to us and will if we rebel against him. But notice in the psalm something very interesting. Notice that God terrifies them with his wrath by saying something. Do you notice that in verse 5? He says, he terrifies them in his wrath, saying. What does he say? Look at verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He terrifies them by saying, I've already done what you're trying to prevent. God has already done what his enemies are trying to prevent. His king is already installed. You can't uninstall him like some kind of unwanted app on your phone. He is already installed. He cannot be uninstalled. You can try and kill his people. You can legislate. You can wave your flags. You can make your movies. You can sing your songs against him. You can try and indoctrinate children, but Jesus is already installed and he's going nowhere except to come back as judge. The installation of God's king and the decree which we'll see shortly has already happened. First of all, though, it refers to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that he would sit on a throne that would last forever. In that chapter, we read these words from 2 Samuel 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And despite opposition, 
much of which we will read about in the Psalms that David wrote. David was made king by God and he ruled from Zion. Zion speaks of the mountain in Jerusalem upon which the temple was built. King David ruled from there. But this psalm ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ. He is the chosen one of God. He was opposed by the nations, even his own people. He was even killed by those plotting against him. And they thought they had won except Jesus rose again from the dead. And when he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, where he reigns forevermore. God has installed Jesus as king in Zion. And as well as the earthly Jerusalem, Zion in the Bible also refers to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, which is where Jesus currently sits. He is king forevermore. He is installed. He is given the highest place. He is given the name above all names. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and nothing and no one will change that ever. Now Christian, this for us is most encouraging because when we look around us and we see the rebellion against God's word all around us, at work, in the classroom, in the cinema, on the radio, on the news, in our parliament, in our shops, in our restaurants, and so on, it can appear as though the rebellion against God is going strong and winning. But the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ shows that he is the one who reigns forever, and no goldfish bowl-style rebellion is going to defeat Almighty God. And whenever we might doubt that, we need only look back at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, which has happened. He is installed as king. And the biggest terror for the wicked is the reality that Jesus is king. It's a comfort for us, but what terrifies the rebellious world is that what they are trying to stop has already happened. In verses 5 and 6, he terrifies them by telling them that. The biggest terror for the wicked is the reality that Jesus is king, because as we will see, it means they'll face his wrath and judgment. God has spoken. The king's already installed. Well, in verse 7, we see a voice change. In verse 6, we see the Lord speaking of how he's installed his king in Zion. In verse 7, we see someone proclaiming the Lord's decree. This voice is the king himself. And the voice speaks of the rule of the Messiah. That's verses 7 to 9, the rule of the Messiah. So in verse 7, we read, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Now, a decree was and is a document that pronounces someone as the legitimate king. So last year, when Queen Elizabeth II died, uh, the next day, there was a decree read from St. James's Palace. And that decree announced that Charles, her son, was the rightful heir to the throne. And he can reign. And King Charles himself read decrees at his coronation. So a decree is uh, from a ruler or 
explaining about a ruler to say that he is the rightful king. And in the psalm, the king reads the decree from the Lord, the one enthroned in heaven. And the decree basically says that he is the rightful king to rule the earth. Notice what the decree says that in verse 7 that he is reading. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Well, the language of father and son is, is what God said to David about the king of Israel when he made his covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. So again, we read there, 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. And in the psalm, the word today speaks of the moment of commitment. So in a moment in time, in history, the king is proclaimed as such by the Lord's decree. Now this did happen to King David and to King Solomon. There were decrees read that declared that they were kings over God's people. But again, we see that this ultimately speaks of King Jesus. And this verse in particular is spoken of many times in the New Testament. So when Jesus was baptized and anointed by the Spirit, we read, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when some disciples saw Jesus in his glory, we hear the voice from heaven, again, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When Paul was preaching in a synagogue, he was speaking of Jesus being the Messiah. He said, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer there is trying to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he quotes this verse to show Jesus is the Son of God. And the psalm is about him. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. And again in Hebrews 5.5, which I'm not going to put on the screen, but you get the point. Jesus again is spoken of, quoting this verse, showing how he is appointed by God. Psalm 2, in fact, is possibly, uh, I think it is, the most quoted psalm and one of the most alluded to in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus as God's king. And so Jesus is the Messiah, the king installed in Zion to rule. Well, in verse 8, we see that the privileges of that rule are given to Jesus. As the Son, he can ask of the Father, and indeed he's commanded to ask of the Father to make the nations his inheritance. Now at the moment, we've seen that these nations are conspiring against God. But those nations conspiring against him are given to him, and he will possess them and the whole earth. Now here we, we, we get to a point where it was never really true of David. But we see it really in Jesus. In Matthew 28, we see the Great Commission where Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Making disciples is making followers of Jesus. Citizens of the kingdom who will worship the king. 
Later in the Bible, in Revelation 7, we see how people from all nations worship Jesus and how the whole earth will be filled with his glory as he rules over a people from every nation over the whole world. He will receive all nations. And for those conspiring and plotting against the Lord and his anointed, they'll find themselves coming under the judgment of King Jesus. Notice in verse 9. He's given the nations, but he will break them, in verse 9, with a rod of iron. A rod is a scepter that shows his rule, and the iron speaks of the strength of it. And we see in here an image that's used in Revelation a number of times. For example, in Revelation 19, we read of Jesus coming to execute judgment on the nations, and John in Revelation, uses Psalm 2 verse 9 in his description of what will happen. He describes Jesus' coming like this. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the judgment of God is coming on all rebels through Jesus, you see? The rod of iron will smash the rebellious nations like pottery. In fact, that phrase um, in verse 9, dash them to pieces like pottery, is interesting because in ancient times, um, in Egypt, it is known for sure this happened, that when a nation or a people or a person was going to be cursed, their name was written on a piece of pottery, a curse was spoken against them, and then the piece of pottery was thrown on the floor and smashed. And it was a symbol of what would happen to that person or people or nation. And here that imagery, which was a common and vivid image, is used to show what Jesus will do to all rebels who are conspiring and plotting. It is in vain because they will be smashed. They look strong, don't they? They look strong, but they are as fragile as a piece of pottery that is just dropped on the floor and smashed to pieces. And it is the one with the scepter of iron that is strong and who is in charge. So the decree is read. Jesus is God's son. The nations are his. He rules with a rod of iron and will smash his enemies. How then... Should we respond? Well, for this, we come to the voice of the psalmist. He shows us in verses 10 to 12 the response to the decree. Notice at the start of verse 10, we have the word therefore. So this is the response to what we've just heard. The nations have spoken. They're rebelling against God. The Lord has spoken in his rebuke. There's no point. I've installed my king already. The king has spoken. I am the king, I rule, I'm going to judge. How should we respond? Well, first of all, I want to point out that in the response, the call goes out in verse 10 to you kings and you rulers, but it applies to us all. We'll see this more clearly, especially in Psalm 8, but all humanity are kings and rulers in a way. Humanity was made to rule on the earth. 
It's not just kings that rebel against God's rule. The message is for all humanity, all of those made in God's image to rule on God's earth. It means you and it means me. How are you to respond, each of us here this evening, to this reign of King Jesus? Well, the call is twofold, a twofold response. You need to be wise and you need to be warned. Be wise and be warned. The wisdom is found in verse 11. Notice how we're to respond. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Serving the Lord is following his word. The word Psalm 1 calls us to delight in. And we're to do that with fear. The fear is an awareness of who God is, the, the seriousness of his word, the destructive consequences of rebellion. And his rule also is to be celebrated. Joyful submission, joyful service, for he is good. He is delightful, he is worthy. In his service, there is true freedom. You know, the rulers of this world might tell you that God's word is chains and shackles. It's rubbish. Their ways are chains and shackles to sin and destruction. God's word is where true freedom is found. And so we celebrate that rule with with, with celebration, but with trembling. It's not unthinking. It's not a light thing. We're serving the Lord, the one enthroned in the heavens. We celebrate with trembling. It's a recognition of who God is. That's the wise response. Conscientious service of the king over all. But the warning is found in verse 12. Notice the warning. Kiss the son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. To kiss the son is to pay homage to him. Um, You may have seen um, examples of this in, in films where rulers get you to kiss the ring. Similar kind of principle. It's a sign of of submission or of of homage. To submit is to be stripped of our arrogance and pride. And it's to come under his good rule, a rule worth celebrating. But the warning is that if we don't, he will be angry. And again, this anger is not petulance. It's a settled response and opposition to evil, all of which is the result of not submitting to him. And the way of rebellion, we read there, leads to your destruction, to to judgment, to hell. That's what this means. And it can happen, it says, in a moment. In a moment. Just like I can, in a moment, elbow a goldfish bowl and it falls over and all the fish just die. In a moment, like that, God can judge. His wrath can flare up. The way of rebellion leads to your destruction... And it can happen in a moment. The picture here, by the way, when it says God's wrath flaring up, it does not mean kind of uncontrolled anger. The picture here is, if you imagine a fire that's just kindling, okay? Kindling, but then if you want to add fuel to it for it to flare up, you're in control of adding the fuel. That's what's going on. God is restraining at the moment in his mercy so that people will respond to him. But in a moment, he could just add the fuel and it flares up. That's the image that kind of we should have in our mind. It is restrained in mercy so that we have time to submit to his rule. 
But that mercy will not last forever. And there'll come a time when we have to face his wrath. It was, by the way, poured out on Jesus, which we'll see in a moment. But for us at the moment, it's, it's, it's held back, it's restrained. Notice the way of escape at the end of verse 12, though. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You cannot escape him, but you can take refuge in him. The one who displays wrath is also the one who is the refuge from it. Do you see that? He is our refuge from the wrath that we deserve. And we can know this to be true because the king who read the decree took the wrath we deserve upon himself when he died on the cross for our sin. Jesus took the full wrath. He took the full flame. It was not restrained on him. He took that for us. One commentator says that there is no refuge from him, only in him. There is no refuge from him, only in him. And so tonight, I want to urge you, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Come under his rule, which is the true way to blessing. I urge you to do that because to delay, his wrath can flare up in a moment, can't it? There's a clear choice. But I want to end with a final quotation from the New Testament of Psalm 2. To kiss the sun is the way to blessing, which includes it being the way to enter into the Psalter. In Psalm 1, we are blessed as we delight in his word. In Psalm 2, we see that his word reveals his son. Blessed is the one at the beginning of the Psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed are all at the end of Psalm 2. But this blessing is not just escaping God's wrath. It's not only living the best life we can live because it's under the rule of the one who made us in the here and now. The ultimate blessing for us is actually our ultimate hope. Jesus is the king, not only who reigns, but is the king who we will reign with. Revelation has echoes of Psalm 2 throughout, as we've seen, but one place where it's directly quoted is Revelation 2, verse 27. And in writing to a church in Thyatira, Jesus says these words. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. The one who is victorious in Revelation here is the one who endures to the end, the one who continues to follow Jesus. And to that one... He speaks of them ruling with him, just as he received authority from his father. And so, Christian, we shall be like Jesus. We shall share in his reign. We shall be glorifying God forever. Sinners like us, ones who were involved in those conspiracies and plots against the Lord and his anointed, are the ones who have been forgiven of our sins because we have 
kissed the Son and He has forgiven us of our sins and He has blessed us and we will then reign with Him forever. Despite all of us being those enemies and God has decreed this will happen. I have installed my King already. He's not going to be uninstalled and we will reign with Him. Truly, truly, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And if you're here tonight and you've not kissed the Son, if you have not taken refuge in Him, let me urge you today, seek forgiveness of your sins through Jesus, submit to His rule, and you'll be forever blessed. Well, I'm going to end there, because it's the end of the psalm. But we're going to end by singing. We are going to celebrate his rule together. And we're going to have two songs to end with, uh, both which have these echoes of Psalm 2 in mind. Uh, first of all, we're going to sing a very old hymn that says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. And then secondly, he shall reign forever and we shall reign with him. So let's stand and let's together as God's people celebrate the rule of King Jesus.
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.